hear God's word. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This is the word of God. Heavenly Father, this is indeed the Word of God. And as your people here this morning, we are in desperate need of hearing from you. As a local church, we're in desperate need of being instructed by you in what it looks like to care for one another in the body of Christ. And so, Lord, we are praying that you would give us understanding in your Word this morning We're praying, Lord, that you would also give us tender and pliable hearts. None of us would come in here this morning with walls that are put up or perhaps wrongly assuming that we're doing just fine. We don't need any change or any growth in our lives. Lord, please uh, clear any of that out of the way because all of us are in need of instruction. All of us are in need of transformation so that we can become more and more like Christ. And collectively as a church family, we need transformation. We want to be a faithful church. We want to be a beautiful expression of the good news of the gospel and of the wonderful and glorious God that we serve. So help us to these ends, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I'd like to sort of selfishly request prayer from all of you for myself and my family who have just been battling with sickness since Silas was born. So like five weeks now, I mean, we just cannot seem to get over it. Um, I'm still trying to clear my throat and do okay being able to preach and talk. And my poor wife is 
trapped at home is probably exactly how she feels. And both of my boys have ear infections right now and upper respiratory infections. So I just want to invite you guys and just ask you guys to pray for us and especially for Erica, as uh, I know for her, it's just getting very, very trying being in that situation day after day. So um, we really covet your prayers. But this morning, hopefully I'll be able to get through all of this with a strong voice. Uh, because this is a great text. You know, as I was studying 1 Timothy in preparation for this series, I'll confess that when I was first beginning those studies, uh, this section on widows did not seem to me to be the most relevant text, perhaps, or the, the text that I was most eager to preach in this series. But I'll tell you that after studying this text, I have been so enriched uh, the last couple of weeks considering the great wisdom that God is giving to us in his word for caring for those in need. You know, benevolence can be one of the most challenging areas of church ministry. Um, churches have developed over the centuries a wonderful reputation of being generous. And that's a good thing, right? People historically have always looked to churches as places that they can go to to receive aid and receive care uh, when they find themselves in times of distress. In fact, our own church, Apostles Church, regularly experiences people uh, that drop by and they're asking for things like food or maybe gas or clothing or shelter. We've received phone calls from people asking us if we can put new tires on their cars or pay their utility bills. There are people out there who are in need and look to churches to provide some of those needs. But navigating through each request and through all of the individual circumstances requires a great deal of God-given wisdom and spiritual discernment. Because churches are in a unique spot. On one hand, as a church, what you want to do is you want to do good to everybody out there who is in need. You want to faithfully love and serve all of your neighbors. And yet, on the other hand, we know that we have a special obligation to care for our own spiritual family, to care for those believers who are in the household of faith. And so if one specific local church like us were to say, you know what, we are going to meet every single material and physical need in our community. If that was our goal, we'd barely even scratch the surface. We'd hardly even make a dent and we would be out of resources before we even blink. So how does a church like Apostles navigate through the challenges of loving all of our neighbors in need while, while caring for the needs of our own congregation, of this spiritual household? Well, to answer questions like this, we are blessed that we're not the first church that has faced these kinds of questions. In fact, every Christian church for the last 2,000 years has had to deal with these sort of uh, situations, including the earliest Christian churches. Timothy, this young pastor that we've been studying his, his ministry here in 1 Timothy, Timothy in his church in the city of Ephesus was facing similar circumstances. And this is the main thing that we're going to look at today. The title of my message this morning is Instructions for the Church, Part 1. Instructions for the Church, Part 1. Now, at the end of the last chapter, chapter 4, last week we talked about how the Apostle Paul was exhorting this young pastor to set an example of godliness for the church, number one. So, in other words, Timothy, you need to be a model of godliness for the church to look at. And also he was exhorting Timothy to exercise his gifts and to lean into his calling as the pastor and the teacher of that church. 
And now in chapter 5, Paul is turning a corner and he's giving Timothy instructions for the church to both model and teach. The first thing that Paul deals with in verses 1 and 2 is he offers Timothy guidance on how to correct members who are in error. Correcting members in error. Here's verses 1 and 2 again. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So Paul says to Timothy, this young minister, he says, listen, do not rebuke an older man. The word rebuke here means to criticize sharply. It's to be harsh. It's to actually confront someone in a way that tears them down rather than confronting them in a way that builds them up, which is what he actually encourages him to do. Don't don't rebuke or criticize sharply an older man. Instead, encourage him like you would a father. To rebuke sharply, to sharply criticize an older person for young Timothy to do this, that would be rightly received by that older man as disrespectful. And that's not okay. Respect for older people was not just encouraged, but did you know it was actually commanded in the Old Testament? Here's Leviticus 19.32. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. I mean, listen to the level of respect and honor that People in Israel were commanded to give to older people. And then, of course, there's the fifth commandment, Exodus 20, 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And, you know, when you look at our culture today, this is something that we desperately need to work on. We live in a culture that places a high level of value on youth and youthfulness. We're a youth-driven culture. And we view, unfortunately, sometimes older people as somehow being out of touch or uncool. Add to that this little thing called Google or Wikipedia. And one of the most important ways that elderly people have historically maintained their value in the community vanishes. I'm referring to the fact that older people were sources of wisdom and knowledge from a lifetime of experience and learning. But now young people often turn to their smartphones and they think that they know more than their parents or their grandparents. And they don't sense that they really need the wisdom of the generations that have gone before us. But friends, listen, God is calling us to live differently. And if you're a young person in this church this morning, I want to commend to you, honor older people, respect older people, look to older people as somebody who is worthy of dignity and somebody who you can learn from and glean from. One of the things that I'm stoked about with our community groups is that our community groups are gonna be a cross-section of everybody in our church. They're not gonna be age-specific. So it's not, oh, here's the young community group over here. Here's a middle-aged community group. Here's an older community group. It's gonna be a hybrid, a blending of all different ages in our community groups. And I'm excited about that because that's an accurate picture of what the church is, right? Look around this room. Young and old worshiping together and we should be in small group together doing life together. And what can happen in that context is that the older folks who have been walking with the Lord for many years can mentor and disciple and encourage the younger folks and say, hey, 
Daniel, I know you're in a tough season right now with little kids who are sick, but guess what? They're going to survive. You're going to get through this. I've been there. I've done that. And younger people are going to have an opportunity to serve the older folks in their community group and honor them and learn from them. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, notice with me this morning, the Apostle Paul is not denying that an older person in the church might need correcting. So so he's not saying that they don't need that, that older men or even older women in the church might need that. What he is doing is he's instructing Timothy to handle those situations with care, to honor them and to encourage them toward growth and change rather than coming in and being harsh and rebuking them sharply. After all, we're family, and those are the dynamics he wants to point our attention to. He says, treat the older men in the church like they're your father. Treat the older women in the church like they're your mother. Your mother. Treat the younger men like they are a brother. You're not better than them, Pastor Timothy. Treat them like a brother. Treat the younger women like your sisters. You're all a family. You're all, you all come into the faith the same way, by faith in Jesus, the true son, and now you become sons and daughters of the Most High. So there's family dynamics at play here. And Timothy is being instructed on how to interact with all these different members in the church. He gives one specific instruction regarding the younger women that's important. He says, treat them as sisters, but look at the little qualifier he puts there. He says, in all purity. This is important. Paul is giving specific caution to this young minister regarding the younger women in the church. Because guess what? Younger women in the church need pastoral care just like everybody else. The pastor needs to minister to the younger ladies in the church, but they need to be really careful with that. They need to be watchful with that because, of course, there can be unique temptations here. And so pastors, whether you're a younger pastor or an older pastor, you need to take extra precautions in the ministry dealing with women and especially younger women. And I would say this, that young women need to take extra precautions with their pastors. Everything should be above reproach. Well, Timothy is to model what it looks like, as we see, to correct other members that are in error. He's to do it in an honorable way and a respectful way, treating the church as family. But next, he turns his attention to a matter of benevolence, of taking care of Widows, And we see this spelled out for us in verses 3 all the way down to 16. You'll notice if you look at your Bible there that the section is broken up into two paragraphs. First paragraph is verses 3 through 8 and the second is 9 through 16. I want you to also notice that each paragraph begins with a different controlling verb. In the first paragraph, look at verse 3. The verb is honor. So that's what we do toward the widows there in the first paragraph is we honor widows. But in the second paragraph, there's a shift and there's a new verb and it is enroll. Let a widow be enrolled or registered or added to the list, depending on your translation. Also, we'll notice as we break this down that in each paragraph, there are a different set of qualifications for those who these verbs apply to. And this has led many people, myself included, to understand these two paragraphs, to actually be speaking about two different groups of widows in the church and not the same group. 
The first group in verses three through eight is about widows who should receive financial support from the church. The second paragraph is about widows who should be given opportunities for ministry alongside the pastors and deacons of the church. So let's break this down. Let's begin with the first group. Paul is giving Timothy here instructions to the church on caring for widows in need. You know, God's heart, and we've been talking about this a bit this morning, has always been toward people who are vulnerable, people who are facing um, extraordinary challenges in their lives, people who are the most vulnerable in society. What types of people would that be? Well, it would be people like orphans. It would be people like foreigners. It would be people perhaps with disabilities. And of course, we see widows included in that group. I read for us already Psalm 68.5, which tells us that God is father of the fatherless and protector of widows. That's who God is in his holy habitation. Notice that widows there are viewed as needing protection. They're an especially vulnerable class of people, particularly in the ancient world. Women have always been a vulnerable class. Widows, an extremely vulnerable class. You know, until modern times, most women throughout history have not been afforded the educational and professional opportunities to provide for themselves and for their families. In traditional societies, women have been largely relegated to household management and domestic duties. And of course, prior to modern technology like contraceptives, most women spent the majority of their most productive years pregnant and taking care of a series of young, small children during those years where you really do have the ability to earn if you were able to in your society. And because of this, if a woman were to lose her husband and the provision that he was able to provide, she would be left in an extremely vulnerable situation. That's why under Old Testament law, God actually set up provisions for caring for widows in the community. By the time we fast forward to the life of Jesus, we see that Jesus carries on this tradition. One of Jesus' famous miracles was raising the son of a widow from Nain back to life. He had died and Jesus had compassion on her and raised her son back to life because he knew, again, what a vulnerable situation she would be in, especially after losing her son. Jesus also looked at widows as praiseworthy on several occasions in his teaching ministry and he blasts the scribes for devouring widows' homes. Tells them that they're oppressing these women in need. It's no surprise then that the early church followed this pattern. When you get to Acts chapter six and the beginnings of the ministry of deacons, the issue at stake there is that there were, there were widows in the church who were being neglected. There were these women who needed help from the church and the church was not meeting their needs. And so the church says, listen, this can't continue. We need to fix this problem. And so seven deacons were selected to make sure that no widows were left out in the daily distribution of food. James, the brother of Jesus, writes this in James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so here in Ephesus, where Timothy is pastoring, 
we see the church continuing in that tradition of seeking to meet the needs of widows. And Paul here is instructing Timothy in specific ways on how to handle that situation. In verse three, he begins his teaching and he says, honor widows who are truly widows. In other words, not every woman who had lost her husband qualified for support from the church. Only those, he writes, who are truly widows. Okay, well, who is that? Who are the true widows? Verse five tells us. Those who are, first of all, left all alone. Here's what verse five says. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So the true widows are those who are left all alone, meaning that they have no family or no other means to take care of themselves. They are truly left to be destitute. We see here in this text that if a widow does have family, specifically if she has children or grandchildren, that the family is called on by the Lord to provide for her, to take care of her needs. Look at verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So the children and the grandchildren are called on to actually take care of the widows in their family. And I want you to notice something really quick that jumped out at me this week. I, I love how practical godliness is here. Do you see what he said there in verse four? He says, let them first learn to show godliness. We've been talking a lot about godliness the last couple of weeks. In fact, in chapter four, verse seven, Paul instructed Timothy to train himself in godliness. And a lot of times we think of godliness just in terms of our spiritual life and just in terms of reading the Bible, going to church, praying and fasting, and all of that is a part of what helps to shape us into godly people. But friends, listen to me. At the end of the day, godliness is very practical. It impacts the way you live your life. It impacts your relationships and the way that you treat other people. In this case, we can demonstrate our godliness. How? Not by going out and evangelizing, but by feeding and caring for and providing shelter for our own family. That's what godliness looks like. Loving, serving, ministering to, caring for those who are in need. So children and grandchildren are called to do this. Why are they the ones called to do this? Well, he gives us several reasons. Reason number one is this. Paul's saying, listen, they ought to do this because it's only right in light of what their parents and grandparents have done for them. It's so that their parents can get some return, he writes, from their children. Isn't that the way that the world works, that God has ordained things? You come into the world and your parents take care of everything for you. And most of us grow up and we do not understand the extent of the love and the support and the care that our parents have provided for us if you had parents there for you or our grandparents. And then all of a sudden you have your own kids and you start realizing, oh my gosh, this is really demanding. This is all consuming. There's a lot of sacrifice that's being made here. And that's what happens. We take care of our children when they're young and we pour into them and we invest in them and we raise them and then when we get older, everything's supposed to reverse. And suddenly our children and our grandchildren are able to 
return the favor, so to speak, and serve us through the and help take care of us as we become increasingly vulnerable. So that's the first reason Paul gives. It's only right. The second reason in verse four is because this is pleasing to God. When we take care of our family, when we take care of our parents and our grandparents, really we're obeying the fifth commandment. We're honoring them, but it's pleasing to God. In fact, he's going to reverse the way he says this in verse eight and basically say, if you don't do this, if you don't take care of your own household, if you neglect them, Paul says, you're denying the faith. You're worse than a non-believer. You're denying the very God who himself cares for widows, who himself cares for vulnerable people. And you are now denying the faith. You're worse than non-believers because even non-believers know that it's right to take care of their own. The third reason is because it frees up the church to care for true widows, those who have no one to help them. Look at verse 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So if the believing children and grandchildren in the congregation are caring for their own family, it allows the church to have resources to care for widows who are true widows, meaning they're left all alone. They don't have family. They don't have anybody to care for them. So, so far we see that true widows are those who are left all alone. But then secondly, look at this. True widows are looking to God. Verse five again, she who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Now these true widows are set opposed to the widow who's described in verse six, the one who is self-indulgent. This is the woman who lives for pleasure rather than living for God. And presumably that woman would not qualify for the church's financial support. The true widow, the widows that the church is obligated to care for are those who are left all alone, they're destitute and they're godly. They're looking to God as their source of salvation and deliverance. These are widows who the church can discern are godly. So it's not just any woman who walks in off the street and claims that she has a need. The church is not obligated to come to her aid and support her from that day forward. Presumably in this text, we see that the church has had the time and the relationships to get to know this widow, to know that she's a godly woman, to know that she's offering prayers to God night and day, to know that she's truly destitute. Obviously, the church would know her family situation and dynamics and know that she literally is left all alone. This is one of the many reasons why something like church membership matters. You know, in church membership, we're actually able as a church to get to know people, to discern to the best of our ability, is this person somebody who really knows God, who is really worshiping God and following God? And we're able to get to know their situation and their family dynamics. And a church is much more is able to be much more discerning in how it cares for people in need if it actually knows who they are, knows their circumstances, knows what's going on. Now, some of you might be going, so pastor, are you saying we don't care for non-Christians? I'm not saying that. Um, the scriptures teach us that we should seek to do good to all people. So we should seek to care for non-believers and help them as we have opportunity. But for those who are members of the household of faith, listen, we are obligated to care for them. Because those people who are part of the family of God are family. So 
If we are caring for them, we're ministering to them, we're helping to meet their needs in real times of crisis, we're able to demonstrate that they are family. You know, what a bright light. This sort of care for the widows in Ephesus must have been to the city as they sat and watched the church there operate. These women who were literally destitute, these women who were without hope in the world, these women who were very, very vulnerable are actually being cared for in the local church Godly kids and grandkids are taking care of their widowed mothers and grandmothers. And for those vulnerable women who had no physical family, guess what they did have? They had a spiritual family that was there to care for them all the same. You know, I've been thinking too, I mean, what a, what a bright and shining light we would be in a city like Santa Barbara if we got really, really good at caring for people in our own midst who are in need. If we were the type of church that could step in in crisis situations and minister to people who have genuine need. So the church's general policy on widows is to care for those who are truly widows. We've looked so far at instructions for the church regarding correcting members in error and caring for widows in need. Lastly, let's look at verses 9 through 15 and calling widows into service. Paul here in this paragraph is no longer discussing widows who qualify for support, which he calls honor, but now he's discussing widows who qualify for enrollment or registration being put on a list. So what list are they being added to? It's a good question to ask. What, What is this list that they're being enrolled on? Well, it seems that this list is of a unique group of widows in the church who were not only supported by the church, but they were also entrusted with a level of ministry responsibility as they devoted themselves to full-time service in the church. We know from church history that a ministry among widows like this had developed in the church, certainly by the second and third century. And it's likely that this is the beginnings of that sort of ministry among the widows. I think this will become more clear as we break down this section. The first section that we just talked about, verses 3 through 8, was based on being godly and being in need. Those were the qualifications to be supported by the church. But now we'll see in this section that the qualifications are based on age and ability. So which widows would be called into this ministry? Look at verse 9 again. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age having been the wife of one husband, and then verse 10, and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So which widows among the widows in the church could be called into this ministry? Well, first and foremost, widows who were 60 years old and beyond. 60 years and above. Generally, these widows are past the point of remarriage and of child rearing and raising a family. So she was 60 years and above. Also, we see that she lived a godly life. She had a great testimony, right? He lists a handful of things like she had shown faithfulness in her marriage. She had a solid reputation in the church. She raised her own family well. She was a woman who demonstrated hospitality to people. She demonstrated humble service. That's what's meant there by wash the feet of the saints. She's cared for people in trouble. This was likely persecuted Christians or others who were in need. And she had devoted herself to good works in 
general. So a woman who's 60 years old and has literally almost a lifetime of testimony beyond her, or behind her, I should say, qualified for this unique ministry. One of the things I love about this is I love how this provides dignity to these older widows. Losing a husband generally meant losing social status and fruitful work, where when you had your husband, she was managing his house and his affairs. But instead of just offering these older widows benevolence for the duration of their life, the church offers them significant ministry opportunities. It's beautiful. It gives her dignified work and ministry to contribute to during this phase of life. By the third century, it's reported that the order of widows in the church did things such as this. Check this out. The widows in the church devoted themselves to prayer. They were busy nursing the sick, caring for the orphans, visiting Christians in prison, evangelizing pagan women, and teaching female converts in preparation for their baptism. How rad is that? I mean, this is like serious. This is more than just a Christian knitting club, okay? I mean, these are some godly women doing incredible ministry in the church, doing substantial ministry in the church. I mean, how powerful would that be to be like, this is our, this is our team of older widowed women in our church who are devoting themselves to prayer in the church, who are evangelizing the lost, who are training young converts in the faith, who are caring for children, who are running orphanages, who are visiting people in prisons. It's incredible. This is substantial ministry here in the body of Christ. What widows were kept from being called into this ministry? Let's look at verse 11. He says, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan." So who is not called into this ministry? Answer, younger widows. Well, why wouldn't the younger widows be called into this ministry? Well, he gives us two reasons. The first is this, that generally speaking, younger widows would want to remarry. The NIV translates it this way, verses 11 and 12. As for younger widows, do not permit them or do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. See, Paul is aware that for many young widows, their passions, what that means there is their natural desire for sex and for companionship and marriage and family is going to overcome their dedication to Christ, which will cause them to incur judgment for abandoning their former pledge. Now, evidently, there was a pledge or commitment to singleness that was attached to this ministry. When widows who were being entrusted to serve in this way were effectively saying to the church, these women who were 60 and above were saying to the church, now that my husband is dead, I am devoting my life single-mindedly to the church and to serving Jesus and his bride. So as a pastor, Paul was seeing this trend of younger widows who are making that pledge, and oftentimes they were making that pledge likely in the throes of grief. 
after their husband had, had passed away, probably tragically as a younger man, had passed away, the woman is in the throes of grief, can never imagine herself remarrying. And, and Paul's seeing this happen in the church where younger widows like that are now making this lifelong commitment to celibacy and ministry to the church only to later, maybe several years later, find a desire in their heart to remarry and to continue raising a family and to not be completely immersed in church work. And some of these widows were then breaking that commitment and that pledge that they had made to Jesus and to the church. Verse 15 tells us it was happening. Some had already done this. They had strayed after Satan. So that's reason number one. The second reason that he gives is in verse 13. Evidently, some of these younger widows were developing a bad reputation. And Paul was concerned about this. After coming under the church's financial care, they were learning to be idlers. That literally means they were learning to be lazy and unproductive. So they were sitting around on Instagram and Lifetime movies all day long. And then they were going from house to house, not to serve the church like the older widows were, but to gossip and to meddle in other people's affairs. To be busybodies is the word that is used there. See, listen, because of their young age, the church didn't have the luxury that they had with the older widows to see a lifetime of testimony of godliness and good works and fruitfulness to evaluate these younger widows on. And so this led to younger widows being invited into service in the church who oftentimes proved to be immature and to be sinful. And it was distracting and it was actually damaging the church and its reputation. So what's the solution here? How, how, how does young Timothy, this pastor who's confronted with all of these dynamics in the church, how does he move forward in a way that can honor and glorify God and serve the church? Well, well here's the answer. Verse 14, encourage them to remarry. Now notice, notice with me, it's not a restriction for ministry. Paul's not saying, listen, young, young widows, they don't do any ministry. No, they just get to sit on the sidelines in ministry. It's not a restriction for ministry. It's a redirection of ministry. For the older widows, it's ministry in the church, single-mindedly devoted to the church. For the younger widows, Paul is saying, I would actually encourage them not to make that pledge because of what we just talked about. I would encourage them that if they so choose to, to remarry, to go and actually marry a godly spouse and devote themselves to that ministry, ministry in the home. See, there's no wisdom in allowing young widows to make a pledge to remain celibate and at the church's service for the rest of their lives. Why? Because as a young widow, they can receive the church's help during their season of hardship, right? They qualify, verse, verses three through eight, so they can receive the church's help during their season of hardship. And in time, as they meet a godly man, they'll have the freedom to remarry if they so choose to and offer their energies and effort to a God-honoring and fruitful ministry in their own homes. In doing so, they set themselves up for a life of faithfulness to the Lord rather than the possibility of a breach of faith if they break their pledge. And this prevents the enemy from having an opportunity to slander the name of the Lord. Understood in this way, we can see that what Paul is offering to Timothy is a pastorally sensitive and wise solution to dealing with the sticky situation that the church at Ephesus was facing. Rather than letting the church have its resources depleted by trying to care for any and all widows in the church, Paul says, no, 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 Timothy, 
If the widow has godly family, charge them with caring for her so that the church would then be free to care for those who are true widows, those who are truly in need. For the older widows who were unlikely to remarry and have a ministry in their home again, significant ministry in the church was available. And for those younger widows who were very likely to remarry and to desire a family, the church allowed them to walk through their grief process and encourage them in their desires to remarry in the future and resume a fruitful and God-honoring ministry in their own homes. It's actually a really beautiful and strategic way of shepherding the women in the church who found themselves widowed at different points in their life. Now, there's much that we can learn in closing from this text about our own approach to benevolence in the church. The first thing that stands out to me is that the church needs to use discretion. Okay, not anybody and everybody qualified for the church's care and support. Now, again, we as individual believers should seek to help people as, as we're able to that we see in need. But from a church standpoint, our obligation is to take care of people who are in need within the body of Christ here in substantial ways. Unfortunately, many churches want to give benevolence to everybody. And so everybody, whether they're in the church or out of the church, gets little bits of benevolence and nobody actually gets substantial care and help to navigate through challenging seasons of life. And it seems that we should reverse that, that for those who are in the church that are our family, that God's calling us to care for, they should receive substantial help and creative solutions on how to navigate through that challenging season, whether it's a widow, whether it's a, an abandoned young mom, whether it's a family that's fallen on hard times, we should be coming alongside them, using discretion, helping to support them and give them creative solutions on how to move forward and get back to a place of fruitfulness and health. Another thing that stands out is that we ought to support one another as much as possible. We shouldn't always just call the church office and go, hey, so-and-so's in need, write a check from the church bank account, right? There's an obligation, at least in this text, on the family to care for their own family. But I would say to us in this room, some of us have more resources than others. You might learn of a need in your small group. You might hear of a situation and God might be impressing on your heart, hey, you have the means to help. Step in and help right here. We had a family in the church that bought a bunch of benevolence supplies. Nobody asked them to. They just came and delivered them to the church and said, hey, we just want to be a blessing. If people walk in and they need stuff, they come in off the streets, now you've got something to give to them. They had the resources to do that. All of us need to be open to supporting one another as much as possible. And finally, we learned that as a church, we do need to support those members who find themselves truly in need while again, offering them creative solutions to offering the Lord dignified and fruitful ministry. And as I was studying this week and I was thinking about this text, I was thinking, what a, what a God-glorifying plan and vision of benevolence and church ministry. Because on one hand, we're effectively taking care of God's church, his bride. Members are being taken care of. But on the other hand, we're effectively witnessing to the community around us. Because when you're in need and you're in the world and your family turns their back on you, you've got nothing. You, you turn to the government, you're hoping for help somewhere. But what a beautiful thing it is that when somebody in the church is truly in need and they're going through a hard time and even their physical family is not there to provide for them, when the church becomes that spiritual family 
and helps to minister to them and support them and strengthen them through those times of crisis, what a witness to the world around us as they watch. They go, wow, these people do love each other. These people do care for one another. These people really are a family. Maybe there's something to this that they keep, everything they keep telling me about God and about Christianity. The world's able to see us reflecting God's heart by caring for the most vulnerable among us. As we've seen, we worship and we serve a God who cares for the vulnerable and the needy. And I just want to close again where I was at during our offering today by reminding all of us this morning that we're all vulnerable and needy. That every single one of us, whether your bills are paid today, whether your family's intact or whether not, it's not that way, all of us are people who are vulnerable and needy. And all of us should find in our hearts this morning cause to rejoice because we worship and serve a God who comes to the aid and comes to the rescue of vulnerable and needy people. Yes, like widows. Yes, like orphans. But yes, like you and me. People who apart from God are broken. People who apart from God are helpless. People who apart from God are destined for a lifetime of misery. And yet God in his infinite love and mercy didn't leave us that way. All of us were spiritual orphans. All of us were spiritually widowed, so to speak, cut off from the true bridegroom. And yet God sent his own son, Jesus, into this world to make a way for us to be brought into the family of God and to receive all of the love and generosity of Almighty God. And he did that through Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. And now by faith, we embrace Christ. We're unified to him and we are children of God and we are the bride of Christ and we are being cared for now and through eternity. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, we are so thankful this morning for your unbelievable care for us. That though we were, as we read this morning, dead in our trespasses and sins, completely alienated from you and from your family, you in your infinite love sent your one and only son, Jesus, to fix our problem, to deal with our sin through his death on the cross and through his resurrection from the grave and to invite us now by faith into your family where we who put our faith in Christ can become sons and daughters of God, who by faith in Christ can become the bride of Christ and truly be members of your family, being cared for and nurtured by you in both time and eternity. Lord, we're so thankful for the church, which is the primary way that you in this life are caring for our needs. It's through one another in this fellowship, in this church, that our needs are being met, that we're being provided for and loved and nurtured. And so we thank you for the church. Lord, I pray for any among us who are in true need this morning, that they would not be embarrassed or ashamed to share those things with us. But Lord, I also pray for us as a church that we would be a generous people, a concerned people, a compassionate people, that we would reflect your heart in our desire to care for others and help them through trying times in their lives. Lord, I want to pray especially for those in our church this morning who are widowed, who have experienced the unimaginable grief and pain of losing their spouse that they love so dearly, 
And so maybe even just breaching this subject this morning, even talking about widows in the church has been maybe a source of pain for them. We pray that you would comfort them, that you would strengthen them. And Lord, that you would bless seek to serve and minister to us and to our church with the unique freedom gifts that you have given to them. So Lord, we commit all these things to you now. We thank you so much for your love. And we continue to worship you now because you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.